Where does money come from? Trees. <laughs> Where does money come from? Trees. Everybody knows money comes from trees. Um, money comes, I'd say, from the amount of products that a country can produce, uh, things that add value. If it adds value, money, money magically appears. And who creates money? Um, who creates money Um, well I guess individual governments create money right I mean wealth is I think something different than money but in terms of who creates money I guess individual governments create money welcome my friends welcome to this edition of the Corbett Report I am your host James Corbett podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 29th day of June 2007 I play those opening clips as a way of demonstrating the general public's understanding of the banking system under which we are living myself included I think very few of us understand the fundamental facts of our economic existence questions as fundamental as where does money come from or what is a central bank are extremely difficult to answer by ordinary citizens but it is my argument that this should not be the case in fact questions like this are infinitely more important than the latest Paris Hilton interview And yet we are subjected to hours and hours and hours of coverage of such trivial events while important issues go uncovered in the mainstream media. The startling fact is that banking and the creation of money was once the most contentious issue in American politics. Indeed, for the first 150 years after the founding of the Republic, it was constantly debated and talked about. It has now all but disappeared from political discourse. To make my point, I'd like to start with some quotations from some famous Americans, starting with Thomas Jefferson, who in 1816 wrote in a letter, Banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. When asked what his greatest accomplishment was at the end of his life, Andrew Jackson replied, I killed the bank. In 1863, at the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln declared, I have the South in front of me, and I have the bankers behind me. And for my country, I fear the bankers more. In 1881, President James Garfield said, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. That was three weeks before he was assassinated. Also, President Woodrow Wilson declared, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. 
A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all our activities, are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world, no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. Over and over and over these important American historical figures addressed the issue of the banks and the banking world. What were they talking about? What is this banking system which made them so apoplectic and fearful? Well, let's examine some audio clips today from an excellent documentary which I cannot commend to you enough, entitled The Money Masters. Of course, you can find The Money Masters on Google Video, but I urge you to buy this documentary for yourself. It is an excellent documentary. It's three and a half hours long and goes into enough detail to give you a proper understanding of the banking system and how money is created. Uh, if you want to find this documentary and the homepage for it, please go to my website, www.corbettreport.com, and in the documentation for today's episode, you'll find a link to the homepage for this documentary. Other documentaries that I would recommend in regard to this, if the three-and-a-half-hour dry documentary is not to your liking, there's a shorter and much more entertaining, I suppose, documentary entitled America, Freedom to Fascism, which came out last year from Aaron Russo. Uh, another one, an animation that came out last year as well, called Money as Debt. Both of those documentaries are highly recommended. But today we'll be listening to The Money Masters, and the first clip we'll be hearing regards the creation of the modern banking system by the goldsmiths and the founding of the first private central bank in England. A thousand years after the death of Christ, money changers, those who loan out and manipulate the quantity of money, were active in medieval England. In fact, they were so active that acting together they could manipulate the entire English economy. These were not bankers per se. The money changers generally were the goldsmiths. They were the first bankers because they started keeping other people's gold for safekeeping in their vaults. The first paper money was merely a receipt for gold left at the goldsmith. Paper money caught on because it was more convenient than carrying around a lot of heavy gold and silver coins. Eventually, goldsmiths noticed that only a small fraction of the depositors ever came in and demanded their gold at any one time. Goldsmiths started cheating on the system. They discovered that they could print more money than they had gold, and usually no one would be the wiser. Then they could loan out this extra money and collect interest on it. This was the birth of fractional reserve banking, that is, loaning out many times more money than you have assets on deposit. So, if a thousand dollars in gold were deposited with them, they could loan out about ten thousand dollars in paper money and draw interest payments on it, and no one would ever discover the deception. By this means, goldsmiths gradually accumulated more and more wealth and used this wealth to accumulate more and more gold. Today, this practice of loaning out more money than there are reserves is known as fractional reserve banking. Every bank in the United States is allowed to loan out at least ten times more money than they actually have. 
That's why they get rich on charging, let's say, 8% interest. It's not really 8% per year, which is their income. It's 80%. That's why bank buildings are always the largest in town. By the end of the 1600s, England was in financial ruin. Fifty years of more or less continuous wars with France and Holland had exhausted her. Frantic government officials met with the money changers to beg for the loans necessary to pursue their political purposes. The price was high. A government-sanctioned, privately-owned bank which could issue money created out of nothing. It was to be the modern world's first privately-owned central bank, the Bank of England. Although it was deceptively called the Bank of England to make the general population think it was part of the government, it was not. Like any other private corporation, the Bank of England sold shares to get started. The investors, whose names were never revealed, were supposed to put up one and a quarter million British pounds in gold coin to buy their shares in the bank, but only 750,000 pounds was ever received. Despite that, the bank was duly chartered in 1694 and started out in the business of loaning out several times the money it supposedly had in reserves, all at interest. In exchange, the new bank would loan British politicians as much of the new currency as they wanted, as long as they secured the debt by direct taxation of the British people. So, legalization of the Bank of England amounted to nothing less than legal counterfeiting of a national currency for private gain. Unfortunately, nearly every nation now has a privately controlled central bank using the Bank of England as the basic model. Such is the power of these central banks that they soon take total control over a nation's economy. It soon amounts to nothing but a plutocracy ruled by the rich. It would be like putting control of the army in the hands of the mafia. The danger of tyranny would be extreme. Yes, we need central banks. No, we do not need them in private hands. The central bank scam is really a hidden tax. The nation sells bonds to the central bank to pay for things it does not have the political will to raise taxes to pay for. But the bonds are purchased with money the central bank creates out of nothing. More money in circulation makes your money worth less. The government gets as much money as it needs, and the people pay for it in inflation. The beauty of the plan is that not one person in a thousand can figure it out because it's usually hidden behind complex-sounding economics gibberish. So there we have the history of the Bank of England, a private bank, privately controlled by private shareholders that is allowed to create money literally out of thin air. Surely an aberration, you say. Surely there cannot be any other central banks operating on such a model. Quite the contrary. In fact, this Bank of England model is the model that's used for all central banks. In fact, almost every industrialized nation in the world uses a, such a central bank model, including, of course, the central bank in control of the largest economy in the world, the Federal Reserve in the United States, also a private bank owned by private shareholders. For more on that, let's go to another clip from the Money Masters. 
This is the Federal Reserve headquarters in Washington. It sits on this very impressive address, right on Constitution Avenue, right across from the Lincoln Memorial. But is it federal? Is it really part of the United States government? Well, what we're about to show you is that there's nothing federal about the Federal Reserve, and there are no reserves. The name is a deception created back before the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913 to make Americans think that America's central bank operates in the public interest. The truth is that the Federal Reserve is a private bank owned by private stockholders and run purely for their private profit. Even so, this is still difficult to believe that this could possibly be the case. How could this type of institution possibly come into existence? Wouldn't the usual legislative process for creating new government agencies weed out such a, a ridiculous system which literally would have no benefit for anyone except the, the bankers themselves? Well, of course, if you go into the history of the Federal Reserve Act, which brought about the Federal Reserve and brought it into existence, and you look a little bit closer into that history, you'll see that the act was um, brought through legislative circles in an extremely unusual manner. So let's go to another clip from The Money Masters, this time an interview with economist and author Larry Bates talking about the creation of the Federal Reserve. Oh, absolutely. The Federal Reserve is neither federal and has doubtful reserves. It's a private bank that is owned by member banks. And uh, it was chartered uh, under the guise of deceit by an act of Congress in 1913. December the 23rd, 1913, when most members of the Congress had uh, gone home for the holidays, uh, the House of Representatives had passed the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. But it was having difficulty in getting out of the Senate. And... Uh, most people had gone home. But uh, one of the things that I used to make sure and check is when we had a recess uh, in legislative circles, you want to make sure that you adjourn what is called sine die without day. The Senate had not adjourned sine die without day. It was still technically in session. So you had three members of the Senate, according to the Senate Journal, were present on that day, December 23, 1913, and they passed the Federal Reserve Act in the Senate on a unanimous consent voice vote. There was no objection. Had there been one person there to object and say and contest the absence of a quorum, then it would not have passed. The Federal Reserve really, even though it is not part of the federal government, it is more powerful than the federal government. It's more powerful than the president, the Congress, and the courts. Now, a lot of people challenge me on that, but let me prove my case. The Federal Reserve determines what the average person's car payment is going to be, what their house payment is going to be, and whether they have a job or not. And I submit to you that that's total control. Okay, let's take a moment to assess what we've learned so far. Groups of private individuals are in private control of institutions which literally create the money Private, unaccountable citizens have the power not only to create this money literally out of thin air, but then, through the magic of fractional reserve banking, lend out this money many times over, up to 10, 20, some cases even 30 times the amount of money which they have literally created out of thin air. Fractional reserve banking is a hoax. It allows banks to lend out money they don't have. 
the central banking system is a hoax. It allows banks to create money out of thin air. This is a staggering turn of events, and the implications are literally mind-blowing. Let's go back to the issue of what is money. Money under the central banking hoax is a debt-based entity. Governments issue bonds, which are then bought by the central banks with the money which they literally create out of nothing, and then the government uses that money to finance public spending projects. However, of course, since this money is created in the form of bonds which are sold to the banks, these bonds, of course, have to be paid back with interest. Therefore, when the first central bank was created in England back in the 17th century, as we've already heard, one of the things demanded by the central bank shareholders in the Bank of England was that the government secured the loans by taxation of its citizens. And the exact same thing happened when the Federal Reserve was brought about into existence in 1913. Very shortly thereafter, you have income tax being instituted in the United States, a direct unapportioned tax on the citizens' labor, which has been proven time and time again in the courts not to be a valid tax, and yet the government will enforce it because that's their part of their founding charter with the Federal Reserve. Once you have a private bank which issues the money, instead of the government itself issuing the money as it has a right to, it will require increased taxation in order to secure those loans. This is a system that makes sense for absolutely no one except the private shareholders of these private banks. They profit to the tune of trillions of dollars while the average citizen toils away giving their income tax, believing that this tax will be used for public spending projects, although it's been shown in a commission set up by Ronald Reagan in the early 1980s that not a single penny of the American income tax goes towards any public spending whatsoever. Every single cent of the income tax goes towards paying interest on the loans which the U.S. government takes out in order to finance public spending. This is ridiculous, considering that the government could simply issue its own currency instead of issuing bonds, which it then sells for, the, for currency to the privately owned Federal Reserve. The level of manipulation going on is matrix-like. What we believe to hold true about the fundamentals of economics and the creation of money is most assuredly not the case. Let's go back to the Money Masters for a little bit more detail on how money is created in the Federal Reserve System and what the implications of this money-making process are. Again, we go back to the Money Masters. How does the Fed create money out of nothing? It's a four-step process. But first, a word on bonds. Bonds are simply promises to pay or government IOUs. People buy bonds to get a secure rate of interest. At the end of the term of the bond, the government repays the bond plus interest, and the bond is destroyed. There are about $3.6 trillion worth of these loans or bonds at present. Now, here is the Fed money-making process. Step one, the Federal Open Market Committee approves the purchase of U.S. bonds on the open market. Step two, the bonds are purchased by the Fed from whoever is offering them for sale on the open market. Step three, the Fed pays for the bonds with electronic credits to the seller's bank, which in turn credits the seller's bank account. The trick is that these credits are based on nothing. The Fed just creates them. Step four, 
The banks use these deposits as reserves. They can loan out over ten times the amount of their reserves to new borrowers, all at interest. In this way, a Fed purchase of, say, a million dollars worth of bonds gets turned into over ten million dollars in bank accounts. The Fed, in effect, creates ten percent of this totally new money, and the banks create the other ninety percent. To reduce the amount of money in the economy, the process is just reversed. The Fed sells bonds to the public, and the money flows out of the purchaser's local bank. Loans must be reduced by ten times the amount of the sale. So, a Fed sale of a million dollars in bonds results in ten million dollars less money in the economy. So, how does this benefit the bankers whose representatives huddled at Jekyll Island? First, it totally misdirected banking reform efforts from proper solutions. Second, it prevented a proper debt-free system of government finance, like Lincoln's greenbacks, from making a comeback. The bond-based system of government finance, forced on Lincoln after he created greenbacks, was now cast in stone. Third, it delegated to the bankers the right to create 90% of our money supply based on only fractional reserves, which they then loan out at interest. Fourth. It centralized overall control of our nation's money supply in the hands of a few men. Fifth, it established a central bank with a high degree of independence from effective political control. Soon after its creation, the Fed's great contraction in the early 1930s would cause the Great Depression. This independence has been enhanced since then through additional laws. There we have not only succinctly the. Process for making money, which the Federal Reserve uses, but also the direct implications of this. Yes, you did hear correctly at the end of that clip. They did make the rather stunning assertion that the Great Depression of the late 1920s, early 1930s, was caused directly by the manipulation of the money supply by the Federal Reserve. This is a rather startling claim, and it goes in the face of what we've all been taught, which is a rather simplistic history of a stock market crash. Being the direct cause of the Great Depression, so let's get a little bit more into that claim.、Uh, the claim is really that the monetary supply being contracted severely between 1929 and 1933 was the the main cause of the Great Depression. Now, it's important to note that this claim was not made by some crackpot, but in fact by a Nobel Prize-winning economist, Milton Friedman. Who in 1996 gave an interview to NPR in which he、uh, outlined his claim and backed it up a little bit. So let's go back to a clip from a Money Masters in which they talk about Mr. Friedman's assertion that the Federal Reserve was in fact responsible for the Great Depression. Although most Americans have never heard that the Fed was the cause of the Depression, this is well known among top economists. Milton Friedman. The Nobel Prize-winning economist, now of Stanford University, said the same thing in a national public radio interview in January of 1996. The Federal Reserve definitely caused the Great Depression by contracting the amount of currency in circulation by one third from 1929 to 1933. For those of you who still feel that this idea stretches the bounds of credulity, perhaps you'll take the Federal Reserve's own word for it. In a speech given on, in honor of Milton Friedman's 90th birthday back in 2002, one of the board of governors of the Federal Reserve Board,、uh, Mr. Ben Bernanke, 
gave a speech in which he talked about Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's groundbreaking work on the Great Depression, in which they alleged that the Depression was caused by the Federal Reserve's monetary contraction. And in that speech, he admits that, in fact, they were right. In fact, he says, quote, I would like to say to Milton and Anna regarding the Great Depression, you're right. We did it. We're very sorry. That's a direct quote from one of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Um, indeed, this system is, as Charles Lindbergh, one of, a congressman at the time uh, that the Federal Reserve was established, and one of the uh, most start staunch opponents of the Federal Reserve, and of course the father of the famed pilot, um, gave some speeches in which he very strongly condemned the Federal Reserve Board, indeed calling the Federal Reserve System the most dangerous system ever placed in the hands of a special privileged class by any government in existence. Very strong words indeed. But, of course, the average person would still say, well, what possible reason would the Federal Reserve have for manipulating the market like this? Why would they bring about depressions? And the answer is that the people who create these depressions also have the power of foresight that comes with that creation. They're able to not only manipulate the markets, but know in advance how the markets are going to be manipulated. And anyone who has that knowledge in advance will be able to play the system in order to make money. It's been said that no money was actually destroyed during the Great Depression. It only transferred hands, and transferred hands into the hands of a very centralized, very specialized group of people who had advanced knowledge of what was happening. Let's get a little bit more into the plans of these bankers and what they actually are planning. Um, let's go to a clip talking about Carol Quigley, the mentor of Bill Clinton, from Georgetown University, a very influential professor who is only known in academic and political circles, but who's um, written a book called Tragedy and Hope, which outlines um, a great deal of the uh, most important issues in the world today, which has been read by very few people, being clocking in over 1,000 pages and not being a particularly exciting read. But um, again, I would recommend that you do check into this book. Let's go to a clip from the Money Masters again about Carol Quigley and what he saw as the banker's plans. As President Clinton's mentor, Georgetown historian Carol Quigley wrote in his 1966 book, Tragedy and Hope, the powers of financial capitalism had a far-reaching plan. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Bale, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards in the business world. If the phrase controlled in a feudalistic fashion didn't send 
shivers down your spine, then you weren't paying attention. But we will be going a little bit more into what that might mean in the next episode. But for now, I'll just leave uh, any anyone who is still skeptical about how this affects their daily life with this report from moneynews.com from Monday, June 25th, 2007. It, the report is called Bank of International Sub- Settlement Warns Credit Boom May Spark Depression. And let's just go a little bit into that article. It says, quote, The Bank of International Settlements is warning that the global economy could be on the brink of a major depression similar to the one that passed in the 1930s. The BIS said that years of loose monetary policy have fueled a dangerous credit bubble, leaving the global economy more vulnerable to an economic catastrophe than is generally understood. End quote. And this is particularly laughable because, as we heard in the last clip, the Bank of International Settlements is, in fact, the central bank of the central banks. And they are blaming loose monetary policy for creating the conditions for a new depression, when, of course, it's their member constituent central banks which are controlling the monetary supply, as we've seen. The level of control is overwhelming. And the implications are staggering, and this is an issue which we will be returning to in the corporate report in the future. The good news is that a lot of the central banks have been nationalized, so that at least nominally, they could be put literally under the control of the governments, including the Bank of Canada, which I hope to get into in a future episode. But as of this moment, these banks are not being used for the purpose for which they were created. It's important to confront the media spin regarding the coming depression before it happens. If we know who was responsible for creating the depression, we won't fall into the trap of believing them when they offer their solutions to this depression. Again, I urge you to get involved with groups and uh, institutions which are fighting the central bankers' control, including the Canadian Action Party, which has a lot of valuable banking information on their website. You can find a link to their website from my website, www.corbettreport.com. That's it for this week. Please join me again next week for Episode 6 of the Corbett Report, Feudalism 2.0.